Well, let me just jump right in and give you an overview. This uh, is, uh, is pretty compact and, and dense. This would be about a semester course uh, in one hour. And uh, so in some respects, it's like taking the uh, supersonic flight, you know, over the terrain and, you know, uh, getting a picture of it as you pass by. But uh, we will do what we can. An overview of progressive dispensationalism. And I give you five uh, points to give an overview of what this is about. First of all, I'm going to describe it as a non-supersessionist redemptive historical biblical theology. When we talk about a redemptive historical biblical theology, a lot of biblical theology done today is done in that mode. It's a redemptive historical biblical theology, one that traces the canonical narrative as a, as a history of, uh, of God's dealings with, uh, uh, with the creation. And uh, a typical redemptive historical biblical theology would follow this structure, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But uh, a problem in just about all of the redemptive historical biblical theologies is you spend a lot of time on creation and fall. You're now in Genesis 3. And then the next thing you know in redemption, you're in the New Testament and consummation. You get things concluded. What's in between those two, between Genesis 3 and the New Testament? A lot of Bible. Okay, And in that a lot of Bible, uh, we find particularly Israel. Uh, when I use the word supersessionist, uh, I'm going to use these terms basically equivalent. It doesn't matter to me whether a person says, well, I'm a replacement. I don't like to use the word supersessionist. A person says, well, I believe in fulfillment. Or a person says, I believe in expansionism. Whatever it is, it ends up being the same thing, that Israel, as an ethnic, national, territorial entity, has been replaced by something else in the consummation. Uh, progressive dispensationalism is a redemptive historical biblical theology that is not supersessionist. It is not uh, replacement theology. Well, it's progressive dispensationalism. So what's dispensational about it? There are some dispensational concerns. Uh, first of all is the integrity of ethnic, national, territorial Israel. You can call it ENT Israel. Okay. Uh, in other words, the integrity of that Israel and that that's not replaced by some other Israel that is non-ethnic, non-territorial, non-national. That ethnic, national, territorial thing has integrity in the redemptive history, in the canonical narrative. Secondly is the distinctiveness of the church. The church is distinctive in the plan and purpose of God. It comes into existence with the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit and the creation of a unity that's called the body of Christ. It certainly is the case that people were saved from the Old Testament to the New. Paul makes this point, all justified by faith. But the thing that makes the church, the body of Christ, has to first of all have the incarnate Christ who has been raised from the dead, gone to the cross, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sends the Holy Spirit and creates it. And that's a, a, a distinctive thing that comes into existence in the canonical narrative. Now, so you got the integrity of ENT Israel, and you got the distinctiveness in the church. 
How does dispensationalism deal with that? Traditional dispensationalism, which I've, in the book that Dr. Keithley referred to, I refer to different periods of dispensational thought, dispensations of dispensationalism, okay? Uh, that you've got classical and revised dispensationalism and progressive dispensational. Well, the classical and revised we can lump together and call that traditional dispensationalism. The way they handled it was to say that the Bible, the canonical narrative, uh, really presents us two peoples and two different stories. There's two canonical narratives going on. One has to do with a heavenly people, and that basically is the church, and one has to do with an earthly people, and that's Israel. And these two different storylines are, are basically presented in different dispensations. So in one dispensation, you're dealing with one story, one people, another dispensation, another story, another people, and so on. Uh, dispensation, by the word, by the way, as uh, Dr. Wellen pointed out, is a biblical word. Covenant is a biblical word. I don't think that traditional covenant theologians use the word in the way the Bible uses it, Dr. Wellam does, because it's, uh, they refer to theological covenants. The Bible is talking about historical, biblical covenants. He and I both use it in that sense. But the word dispensation is a, um, is a biblical term. Um, it comes from the word oikonomia, which means a, an arrangement, an order, a plan. Uh, economy is the direct uh, word coming over into English. And so you have in Galatians 3 and 4, you've got the law as an oikonomos, uh, speaking of an arrangement, an oikonomia, in which the law uh, is uh, structuring that that administrative order, it says until Christ. Okay. And then you have in Ephesians 3, Paul talks about a new oikonomia, a new dispensation, order, a plan that, that he is revealing that hasn't been revealed in previous generations as now being made known. And this is where the Gentiles, together with the Jews, are being formed into a body by the Spirit. That's the church. And Ephesians 1.10 <clears throat> speaks of a future oikonomia, a dispensation uh, in which all things, heaven and earth, are united in Christ. So we're moving progressively through dispensations. Progressive dispensationalism, the key that makes it different from previous dispensationalisms, uh, but maintains the dispensational concern of the integrity of Israel, distinctiveness of the church, is the understanding that the church is not a people group. Anthropology, biblical anthropology, is not Jew, Gentile, Christian. Biblical anthropology is not Israel, Gentile nations, and church. I mean, it sounds odd to say that anthropology includes things like Israel, the United States, Britain, France, and church. That, you know, it just doesn't fit. It's not that kind of category. Church is a spirit-wrought unity of all redeemed peoples, whether they're um, Israel or Gentile peoples, all redeemed persons, whether they're Jews or individual Gentiles of whatever sort, a spirit-wrought unity of all the redeemed in Christ. That's what the church is. And this is new in canonical 
dispensational redemptive history. Uh, it is part of the promise fulfillment pattern when you read the Bible from the beginning to the end. Uh, but there are new things that are happening along with the fulfillment of the ancient promises. Uh, one of the new things is the new covenant, for example. I disagree slightly with Dr. Wellam in saying that the church is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Well, it is. But the new covenant was made, uh, was promised to Israel as a nation, and it has national ENT aspects to it, okay? But in Isaiah 43, I, uh, the Lord says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Will you not perceive it? And this new thing is tied to what he's going to do through the servant, which is a new uh, revelation, the servant of God. And this is the one who is going to uh, rule over the kingdom. He's the same one as in Isaiah 11. Uh, not called a servant in Isaiah 11, but it is that same person who in Isaiah 53 is exalted. And so when that happens, the new thing is, and this is what they had to get used to in the book of Acts, I mean, Acts 10, uh, whoa, he's giving the promised spirit to Gentiles. We never saw that coming. Why didn't they see that coming if the church is simply the fulfillment of the new? Well, it's a new thing that he would take promises that were given to ENT Israel as a people and then extend that to Gentiles too. And then when it's explained at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, it's explained with respect to a kingdom promise going to Amos 9. The kingdom is the key motif that unites the whole narrative together. So, um, there is uh, one storyline, progressively revealed dispensations, one united, multi-particular consummation in Christ. It's very important to understand that the redemptive plan is holistic. And by biblical holism, I mean that the consummation is not just spiritual, it's spiritual and physical material. There is going to be a redemption of the material, physical creation, along with a manifestation of the indwelling of God by the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual and it's physical material. It's holistic. On the anthropological side, and by the way, the physical material, that includes territorial. Territorial features of the earth are part of the earth. <laughs> this is redeemed according to the biblical plan. On the anthropological side, biblical holism means that salvation is not just to individuals. It is. We receive Christ personally by faith, and salvation has to come to one personally by personal faith. But that salvation in the plan of God extends through anthropology to the social level and the communal level and the political levels and dimensions of human life. Biblical holism sees uh, God's plan of redemption, the redemptive history, dealing with all of these aspects. And that's why ENT Israel has a, is very significant revealed in the plan and purpose of God. The kingdom consummation. 
the kingdom consummation, uh, where is it all going? It's all moving to a, an everlasting kingdom in a renewed creation. Isaiah 65 speaks of a new creation. I would speak of that as a, as a renewed creation, Romans 8. Uh, the creation is under bondage, waiting to share the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And God is going to renew that creation. Um, and, uh, and in that creation, we see an everlasting kingdom. What does that kingdom look like? Christ is the king. Uh, he's the one who redeems creation in its multi-particular, multi-territorial features. He orders it under his rule, the multi-personal, multinational aspects of it. He makes it a dwelling place for God. Christ the King is the, is the king of that uh, everlasting kingdom. This is what, the, what Gabriel said in Luke chapter 1 when he said that the Lord uh, would give him the, the throne of his father David and he will rule over it as an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom never comes to an end. Where is Israel in this everlasting kingdom? Israel is a key portion of the multi-ethnic, multinational humanity with a particular territory. It's there in the kingdom. The kingdom is a kingdom of nations. Let's go all the way back to Psalm 2 when uh, he says, uh, you're my son. And he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. He gives to him the nations. Humanity in its national structures are all given to him. Israel is a key nation in that plurality of nations that belongs to him. Where are the Gentile peoples? The Gentile peoples fill out the multi-ethnic, multinational humanity and the multi-territorial particularity of the new earth. Where is the church? The church is the spirit-wrought unity of that whole order. All of those redeemed peoples, whether they are Jews or all kinds of Gentiles, are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit as one redeemed humanity. This is why we can speak of one people of God, yeah. And you can also speak of peoples of God. Both are appropriate. Um, what you have here in the one people, however, is a thick conception, not a thin conception. It's not just an aggregate of individuals. It's humanity in its fullness. And one of the things you have to get used to, I think, theologically, is thinking in theological anthropology of this dimension. Uh, hardly any of the systematic theologies in their anthropology address this. They're all individualistic, dealing with individualistic aspects of anthropology. But there is the corporate features, and without these, you cannot address the pressing issues of today. How do, you, how do you develop a political theology if you don't have a political aspect to anthropology? How can you develop uh, any kind of Christian response to the issue of nationalism if you don't have the concept of nations in your biblical anthropology? It's there. You say, well, that was a result of sin. No, it's not. There was sin involved at the at the Tower of Babel, that's true, but, but the issue of 
coming into existence of nations was not a sinful thing. In Acts 14, when he says he made of one man all the nations of mankind and appointed their times and the places of their habitations. He doesn't treat that as a matter of sin. That's a creation aspect. He created one person and then the two and told them to multiply. In the multiplication came out the social and the political and national dimensions that are part of our anthropology. And so when he comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and he makes promises to him, these promises concern, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And in you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. There's a national dimension to God's dealings with humanity. And you've got to grasp that in order to understand the story of the Bible. What is the, uh, the goal here, the plan, the promise, the final dispensation? Ephesians 1.10. Uh, the Father's purpose which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. All things are united in him. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And I underscore that. All the promises find their Yes, <laughs> in him. Well, someone says, but how do you interpret those promises? So we go to the hermeneutical issues. Hermeneutics in 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, there's seven things I want to say, all right? Uh, the first one on general hermeneutics, all right, that's your, typical that's your typical course on hermeneutics. That's the required course on hermeneutics. All the stuff that's in there, that's the required course in hermeneutics. What you, you don't often get to or spend a lot of time on is point two. <laughs> and that's where this lies. It's what I call narrative hermeneutics. You see, beyond the, the lexical, grammatical, syntactical, formal, and, and all of that is the nar how do you understand a narrative the whole canonical narrative needs to be interpreted, okay? And, and look, there have been tools in evangelicalism talking about continuity, discontinuity. There's John uh, Feinberg's book, you know, about that, and especially dealing with covenantalists and dispensationalists, and I don't find that language helpful. What's helpful in talking about narrative hermeneutics? Plot, okay? Plot development. And when you have plot development, of course, not everything's not the same, okay? There's a plot development. There's, there's new things coming in and out and so on, but there's a developing plot. There's twists and turns in the plot. There's foreshadowing and this sort of thing. The fact that one thing comes after another uh, doesn't mean that mere sequence interprets the plot. They, they, they are related to one another in the way in which the story is presented. And so you have to follow the, the narrative in talking about that. The narrator provides the clues. The disputed issue uh, between dispensationalism and covenantalism is really the disputed issue between supersessionism and non-supersessionism is this. In the narrative, is there a reality shift? Is there a metaphysical change in the plot line for a major character or major characters? 
specifically with Israel. Does Israel suddenly change into something else? It's, it's not what it was. And we're talking about the Israel that was specified by God with certain promises, covenants were made to it. But then when we move to the narrative, it suddenly becomes something completely different. Progressive covenantalism has no problem with that. I have a problem with that. <laughs> the issue, the problem could be found, particularly in this fourth point about performative language. Uh, we don't often in our typical hermeneutics courses dwell much on this, the issue of speech acts and performative language. But performative language is when you say something, you're not just saying something, but actually doing something. You think of a wedding ceremony and those words, those two words, I do. Now, is this rhetorical? <laughs> it's kind of talking. You're actually, you're doing something. You are forming a relationship by uttering those words. And um, you can't, after saying those words, say, well, you know, I really didn't mean it. You know, <laughs> No, hey, the covenant is fixed. And the, other th and the thing is that that person to whom you say I do and make that covenant relationship is not a variable. Okay, it's not X, you know, to be replaced by any person at any time. No, it's that person <laughs> that you're making that covenant with. Performative language, there are speech acts here in the covenant promises. God is making a covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15. He makes a covenant to Israel. And he makes specific promises. These are the ENT promises, ethnic, national, territorial. Uh, he not only makes the covenant, but he swears. That's another speech act oath Genesis 22 and then when you go through the prophets there's these intense reaffirmations I will do this there is nothing well I'm the all-powerful God is there anything that I can't do I'm gonna make this happen he says this over and over and over again get into Hosea well, what if she's an unfaithful wife and she goes off and she's just totally unfaithful and, and then you have this tense thing you know and the 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 pain and the sorrow and so on at the end of the book uh, he's saying but I love yeah, Ephraim. How can I give him up? Uh, you get to in the Malachi, you know, I, the Lord, do not change. And that's why you, Israel, are not consumed. So <clears throat> you've got these speech acts. And look, this is no minor issue. The issue here is a matter of veracity. It's a matter of integrity on the part of the one making the covenant. It draws into question the integrity of God. And this is something that's not seriously considered. Ethnic, national, territorial Israel are, is the specific content of the divine speech acts. But, someone will say, typology is the indicator that these things have shifted in their meaning. He said all this and made this covenant, but his whole intention was to change it and to move it to something else. So <clears throat> we do differ on this matter. I don't agree with Davidson that typology in itself means that there is a escalation of meaning. 
The, the, even Dr. Willem in his book points out that many of the types don't show escalation until you come to Christ. You have an escalation in type patterns when they come to Christ because of his person. Of course, yeah, he's a God incarnate. So there's, there's that kind of escalation. But typology in itself is not an engine for escalating or changing meaning in the biblical narrative. I agree with David Baker that escalation doesn't belong to typology, but as Glenny, and I put his article in there, you can see, uh, has a summary. Look, there's various views of typology, and you can get into that, and I put my article there where I specified some things in Kings Through Covenant that I have a problem with in typology. I think that typology are repetitive patterns by which you recognize a purpose, a design, or a person, a presence. You know, an example of a type pattern that's often not mentioned is um, the axe head in the water. Remember that? The guy that lost the axe head in the water? <laughs> I mean, you have the one iron axe head in all of Israel, and you lose it in the water, okay? That's what happens in the narrative. And, uh, and Elijah comes along and causes it to float. It comes up to the top. You say, well, that's a miracle. And so we go on with our reading. Next. No, look, the issue in that day is who is God? Who is the one who caused the land to come up out of the water in Genesis? Who is the one who brought Israel up out of the water in the Exodus? Who's the one who's bringing this axe head up out of the water? It's a true God. There's a type pattern. A repeti- it's a literary pattern that's repeated. There's no escalation from Israel to the axe head. <laughs> so uh, the, 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 it's too much being put on that and reading the narrative. The typology is important. And so what does it show when Christ um, replays these types in Matthew and so on? You're seeing the, the presence of God. You're seeing uh, a, a history being replayed that draws your attention to it and draws your attention back to the Scripture and to this person. All it is, is all that it's doing is focusing on him. That's true. Well, how do you interpret the narrative? I would say, uh, uh, let me introduce to you this terminology. It's not often used, but if you're going to interpret the canonical narrative, look for what I would call plot vectors. And plot vector, what I mean is you're, you're looking at the narrative and you're, you're taking a portion of that narrative and drawing a, like, you go back to your math, drawing a vector line <laughs> through this to give you a direction, an indicator of where things are going. And this is not easily done with, with isolated texts. You don't go to Matthew 2 and draw a plot vector and say, well, since he's quoting Hosea 11 and Matthew 2, then therefore that means supersessionism. Uh, A better indication of the plot vector is to take a large section of the scripture and see the movement. So I submit to you, Luke Acts, take the whole Luke and corpus. Go from Luke 1 to Luke 24 to Acts 1 to Acts 3 to Acts 13 to Acts 28. 
draw a line here and what do you see? You have in Luke chapter 1 when Jesus is being, uh, the birth of Jesus is being prophesied and look at all the promises that are being tied to him and he's going to be given the kingdom of his, of his father David. And then you come to Luke 24 with the two on the road to Emmaus saying, well, we, we, we thought he was going to be the one to restore Israel. And Jesus says, oh, foolish of heart not to believe all that the prophets prophesied. He's not saying, oh, foolish of heart to believe that I was going to restore ENT Israel. <laughs> That's not the plan. No, you're not getting the whole thing. And what's the whole thing? You've know, you got to come to Isaiah 53. Because unless you have that, there won't be any ENT Israel or anything else. Any of the kingdom promises will be fulfilled. You've got to deal with the sin problem. In Acts chapter 1, when he says, uh, they ask the question, is this the time you're going to restore Israel? And he's not saying, I, I disagree. He's not saying it begins right now. <laughs> He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In Acts chapter 3, Peter brings up times and seasons. And he's ascended in heaven and is going to wait there until the times and the seasons here. And you're to pray for the sending of the Christ to you. At which time all the things prophesied by the prophets will be fulfilled. The restoration of all the things prophesied by the prophets. The restoration is going to take you back to that major section in Deuteronomy 29 to 33, the Shuvut portion of Deuteronomy where I'm going to restore their fortunes. Repeated over and over again. Well, we go to Acts 13. Paul talking about the land being given to Israel as an inheritance. Uh, <clears throat> take Romans. Romans 1, Jesus, uh, who was the descendant of David, raised up of son of, as son of God with power. Uh, go to, from there to Romans 3 about the word of God and uh, that's given to Israel. What's the advantages of the Jews? They were given the holy oracles. And you come to Romans 9, and uh, the word of God has not failed. Uh, but he has a concern for them because the promises were given to them, he says, to physical Israel, and the covenants were given to them, to physical Israel. And it's from them physically the Christ came. And you come to Romans 11, and Romans 11, the remnant that we have now, but then all Israel will be fulfilled. And we have the collage of, of texts being quoted from Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms about the future of Israel. And you come to Romans 15. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to fulfill the promises made to the fathers and to the Gentiles that they might be a people that glorify God. You have the Jews, the promises made to the fathers and the Gentiles. Take a major portion of the scripture and draw your plot vector to see the direction of the narrative. The issue is that the interpretive system needs to be comprehensive, congruent, consistent, coherent. You need to be able to deal with all of the data of Scripture. When you do it, you've got to be congruent to the text. It has the, the interpretations have to fit, fit the text, be consistent and coherent. Now, the structures of the canonical narrative. 
So <clears throat> I give you three ways from progressive dispensationalism. You can see the structure of the narrative. One is very simple but very profound. You have uh, the Adam, the first Adam and the last Adam. Uh, and this I call creation gift and its redemption. There's a gift that's given. You see it in Genesis 2, Genesis 1. You see it in Genesis 1. There's a creation and given here to Adam. Well, the whole canonical narrative, the redemptive history, is about the redemption of that creation that's put in jeopardy by the fall into sin. And at the end of the story, what do we have? We have the, the new Adam. We have the king, Christ the king. But we have the profound situation of the Son of God being revealed in the house of David where a covenant promise was made that he will be my son and I will be his father. And he redeems this creation. And what does he do when he redeems this creation? 1 Corinthians 15, so that he can mutually share it with his father. Some people interpret that, well, he just gives it over and then he doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. No, they share it mutually. That's why his kingdom is everlasting. It doesn't end in 1 Corinthians 15 when he gives it over to the Father. They mutually share it. And that mutual sharing is seen in Revelation 22 when you have the presence of God in the city. God's dwelling is with his creation. Well, you can see it in the covenant structure of redemptive history. The covenant structure, the places, the place of the covenants, they appear in redemptive history. The reason why I don't see a covenant in creation is because the word covenant in the Bible appears in redemptive contexts. It appears in contexts that are dealing with judgment and redemption. So we have the Noahic covenant. He makes a covenant with Noah. We have the covenant term being used in the, in the uh, situation with Abraham, speaking of, a, of the redemptive nature of all of this. So following the use of the word covenant, uh, this is what I would see, uh, the Noahic covenant. And by the way, these covenants, they, they don't, even though they appear successively in the narrative, they are not replacements of one another. They don't replace each other. There is a, a transition from Mosaic covenant to new covenant. There is a replacement. Hebrews 8 and 9 speaks of that. But by and large, the number of covenants don't function that way. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant endures through the entire narrative. The Davidic covenant, once it's made, endures all the way to the narrative. It's everlasting in its impact. We have the new covenant. How do we see all of these? Well, a very simple way of explaining it, and it can be unpacked in a lot of detail. Noahic covenant gives the environment for blessing. He makes a covenant that he is going to bless the creation he made, despite the fact they just destroyed it in the flood. But he's, the, the covenant is that he's going to bless it. And you can go right from there to God's revelation of a new creation. Uh, Romans 8, about lifting the bondage off of this creation. He's going to renew it. Okay. 
The uh, Abrahamic covenant is the promise of holistic blessing. It is the key covenant of Scripture that reveals the plan of God. Uh, what we have here are promises made to Abraham personally and made to his seed, a blessing for him, a blessing for them. This seed is physical. That's very clear in the texts. But it's also adoptive. The adoptive part is in the last part of that covenant. In you, all the nations will be blessed. And the way that's developed in Genesis 17, you'll be the father of many nations. Paul points this out in Romans 4 and so on. But that doesn't mean that the adoptive part has replaced the physical part. They run side by side and reaffirmed throughout the narrative of the scripture. The in you is a mediation, a mediatorial aspect. From Abraham and the physical seed, there's a mediation to the adopted seed, that is all the other nations that are going to be blessed in him. Israel, ENT Israel, has very specific promises. The land promise, for example. This is a problem in some presentations of covenant theology. Michael Horton, for example, in his introduction to covenant theology, says that land promise goes to the Mosaic covenant. No, it's in the Abrahamic covenant. Read Genesis 15. Okay. Read several texts in Genesis with respect to Abraham. The land promise is right there. What the Mosaic Covenant does is it comes in and gives an opportunity for the experience of this holistic blessing for Israel. In their history, they have an opportunity to experience what was promised to Abraham. What was promised to Abraham is future. It's eschatological. It's hanging out there in the future. I will bless you. Mosaic comes, Covenant comes in and makes it possible to experience that right here and now in present experience. And they continue in that through the narrative until you come to the point of the new covenant where a new means of experiencing that blessing comes about on the outline I have uh, for the new covenant the security of holistic blessing I would slightly rephrase that and say what it does is it deepens and secures the experience of the holistic blessing it deepens it and secures it because what we have in the new covenant is the final dealing with sin. Forgiveness, Jeremiah 31. I'm gonna write my law right into your heart. Ezekiel 36, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. When that happens, we don't have sin anymore. <laughs> okay. they're, they're not disobedient when that happens. Everlasting life. Think of Ezekiel 37. He puts his spirit in them and he causes them to live. They live by the eternal spirit of God. It deepens and secures it. Deepens it because it deals finally with the problem of sin that the law could not deal with, Romans 3. The law could not deal with it. God dealt with it through Jesus Christ through a redemption, an atonement. And that atonement, you see, in, in Luke, uh, when uh, Jesus takes the cup, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. But that new covenant has ENT characteristics. Every passage, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 59, all speak of ENT Israel. It's never disappeared it's always in there. 
Okay? This is the way by which the land is going to be secured. This is the way by which the nation is going to endure. This is the way by which the people will continue before him forever because of these salvific aspects. The Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is not a succession and replacement of these kinds of things. It is the mediation of blessing. What was said to Abraham, in you all the nations we bless, goes to the promise to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant um, mediates the blessing in a divinely established kingdom. Psalm 72 shows the relationship of the Davidic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. At the end of Psalm 72, speaking of the king, it says that in him all the nations will be blessed. That's the Abrahamic blessing. In you all the nations will be blessed. Psalm 72. In the king. In him all the nations will be blessed. He, the mediation goes... See, it's not just to Israel. It's somebody in Israel that's pulled up to be the king and he mediates it to Israel. But look, here's the thing, the new part of the narrative. <clears throat> the Davidic king is not simply Israel. To him, Psalm 2, are given all the nations. They were not given to Israel. But all the nations are given to him. He's bigger than Israel. In 2 Samuel 7... Uh, through him Israel's place is secured God said to David but through him peace shalom with the nations so blessing will come to them as well this is the covenant basic basis for messianic prophecy as we see there several passages come to the New Testament, Christ and the covenants. What does the New Testament say about Christ and the covenants? The fulfillments all interweave and overlap. The key is the Davidic. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is what Gabriel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1. He is that Davidic heir and king. And consequently, through him, all the covenant promises get fulfilled the Abrahamic blessing uh, gets fulfilled through him Mo the curse of the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled through him uh, the new covenant blessing is fulfilled in and through him so that he's the atonement by which the forgiveness promised in Jeremiah 31 is provided uh, he's the one who sends the spirit Ezekiel 36 did not say that the Messiah would send the Spirit. It just, it, God says, I will put my Spirit in you. But what we learn in the New Testament is that we read it in the Upper Room Discourse in the fourth gospel where Jesus says that he will send the Spirit. And he sends the Spirit and puts it in them because he's in that I who will send the Spirit. Well, there's a lot that we could look at there. The covenant structure is all over the New Testament. Note, for example, Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is focused on a new covenant promise, the Spirit. 
The question is, beginning of Galatians 3, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? Well, it's not by works of the law that you receive the Spirit, and so Paul launches into this discussion. He says that the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, you see, that was a specific promise to Israel, but the revelation in Acts 10 is that he's going to give this to Gentiles also. Nothing prohibits him from giving this to Gentiles also. And once that happens, this is why in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, they realize, oh, this is the way the kingdom is fulfilled. We go to Amos 9, and we have the rebuilding of the house of David, and we have Israel being blessed, and we have all the Gentiles who are called by my name as Gentiles. They don't become Jews because the kingdom is a multi-particular, multinational kingdom. Okay? So in Paul's argument in Galatians 3, he says this spirit here, this was actually is fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that I'll bless all the Gentiles in you. He says the gospel proclaimed, the scripture proclaimed the gospel to Abraham in advance, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. And so the giving of this spirit is the which is a new covenant blessing is at the same time fulfilling the Abrahamic promise of blessing. The covenants merge together in this blessing concept. And then this is tied to the adoptive aspect in the Abrahamic seed through Christ, who's the Davidic heir. They got the covenants interconnecting here in the phenomena of what's happening in the church. Well, we can trace redemptive history through the covenants and the way the covenants are being fulfilled as we go through the narrative. We could also trace it in the last part here in terms of a coming kingdom. The biblical narrative can be read in terms of a coming kingdom. The kingdom manifestation moves from heaven to earth in the story of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see God, who is obviously sovereign over all things, who is establishing a kingdom with Israel on the earth. But promises are made, well, we could say, even as that Israel kingdom comes to an end through exile, the book of Daniel indicates God, God hasn't lost his sovereignty. He rules from the heavens over all. But you see, Daniel sees that in the future, there's coming a kingdom. This is what I call the eschatological kingdom. And this kingdom is worldwide. And it replaces all the kingdoms that lead up to it. This worldwide kingdom begins its manifestation in the New Testament with the coming of the king. The eschatological kingdom is spoken of as future. It's coming in the future, but we have these texts and the gospels that speak of the kingdom present. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Luke, he says, uh, you know, the kingdom is among you. How is it among you? Because he's among them. He's present with them. The king is with them. In that sense, the kingdom is present. He shows it in his power. 
Uh, this is what we call the inauguration of the kingdom. But the inauguration goes through stages where I would disagree with George Ladd is on this. He would think that in the Gospels, the kingdom extends to the disciples in themselves. It does not, in my opinion. That only comes with the sending of the Spirit. You move from the kingdom, the gospels manifest the kingdom in the person of the king. All of his power is dynamic. He shows his power over physical, material, uh, bodily issues. He shows his power over sin. He shows his power over spiritual issues. There's, it's holistic, his power. After he ascends into heaven... The kingdom comes to be present in the community of the king, as predicted in the parable, I believe, of the wheat and the tares, where he says that there will be a time when sons of the kingdom will be on the earth, growing up along with sons of the evil one. When we come into the epistles, the epistles speak, for example, Paul in Colossians 1.13, he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. We're in the kingdom of his son. How is the kingdom present here? It's present in the community of the kingdom. This koinonia, that's absolutely an essential mark of the everlasting kingdom. Without this, the kingdom will not be stable. No kingdom is stable without dealing with the problem of sin and evil. Well, the inauguration of that is moved a step forward in the manifestation of the church. We have Jews and all kinds of Gentiles, all kinds of Gentiles. <laughs> and we're put into a relationship with one another, with Christ and with one another by the Holy Spirit. That relational quality is a manifestation of that coming kingdom. But we only have it in inaugural form. We have it only in part. It's not in full. It's, not, it's only, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, a down payment. There is a glory that's coming. And we're going to share the glory of Christ when he comes. When he comes, we have present in the rule of the king. I'm a premillennialist. I believe that there's a millennial rule of that king before we come to the eternal rule of the king. That we have to go into actual scripture and see how that works itself out, but I think that there's another stage that's in advance of the inaugurated aspects of the kingdom. When does the kingdom come into its fullness in its everlasting eternal state? And this is in a, a new creation, uh, a new earth and a new heavens where God is dwelling not in heaven but on the earth with his people's and all the promises, all the promises to Israel specifically, and that promise to Abraham that I'll bless all the nations through you, coming down to the individual peoples, people and persons that make that up, that are the entire community of the king, that all those promises are yes in Christ. So the structure of the canonical narrative can be seen. Creation, gift, and redemption, covenant structure can be seen in following the progress of the manifestation of the coming kingdom. We're moving toward a kingdom. And that, I think, is the message of the Bible. Well, there you go in one hour a whole course in progressive dispensationalism.